This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good evening to you out there in mid-Missouri, or wherever else you might be listening to, or whenever else you might be listening to this program. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It's more than radio. It's listener-sponsored, listener-supported community radio, your imagination station. KOPN serving Columbia and Stevens and Sturgeon and Versailles and Wooldridge and Kingdom City, Rochport, Jeff City, uh, places all around. 
And uh, thanks for listening tonight. This is Mike, and uh, we do Radio Orbit every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. talking about the strange and mysterious and uh, sometimes the crazy and wild and bizarre and sometimes interesting and sometimes not. Hopefully interesting most of the time. And uh, we're going to do it again tonight. All right? And uh, first off, big thanks to uh, Deb. Another great episode of Free Range Radio Theater. How about this uh, the series Aurora that she's doing? If, if any, any of um, uh, people listening right now are, are tuning in to, uh, to Deb's show before mine, which you probably are, and there are probably a few of you at least that hang around, <clears throat> how cool that... Uh, uh, that series that that they've uh, that they've built is I love it and it's all local people and all the people uh, a lot of the people at least from Free Range Radio Theater that have gotten together and produced and directed and recorded and uh, done that whole thing and it's really cool actually I've been listening to it I think it's been three weeks now and uh, sort of getting into it now so anyway uh, great stuff from Deb and thanks again for a great episode of Free Range Radio Theater you can catch her every Monday. Uh, an hour before my program from 10 o'clock until 11, okay? All right, tonight uh, we're going to talk uh, with... Actually, I have a, uh, an interview that I taped. Actually, it's been a couple of months now. I haven't had a great opportunity to air this, but uh, I'm glad we're going to get a chance to do it tonight. It's with Dr. Carlos Castro, and Dr. Castro is a, uh, a Ph.D. physicist uh, from MIT and from uh, University of Texas at Austin, and he has a wonderful story. Actually, it's not a wonderful story. It's sort of a sort of a bummer of a story, but it's uh, interesting information that I think will uh, will open the eyes of some of the people out there that get a chance to hear it. So, so that's coming up. Oh, I don't know. We'll probably do that in about an hour and ten, hour and fifteen minutes or, or, or something like that. It's not. Uh, it's only about an hour and fifteen minutes long or so, and I. Uh, we're going to take one break probably in the middle of it, so it'll take us about an hour and a half. So probably won't uh, probably won't go go into that until about 12:30 or so, or maybe we'll start at midnight and then I'll just do something at the end of the program. We'll see how things how things are rolling along. Maybe we'll take a few phone calls beforehand if um, uh, if uh, if anybody'd like to do that. We'll see. Anyway. Okay, uh, what else? Thanks for the emails. Thanks to uh, uh, all the comments and questions and ideas. I appreciate it every time that you guys send me something. I read everything. And I uh, hope to address concerns uh, of people out there. You know, I want to make the sh- show better. And uh, the way that to make the show better is to ask you guys what you like about it and what you don't like about it. And uh, when you tell me that, then um, I'll do whatever I want with it. <laughs> but actually, I take that back. I will take that stuff into account obviously it it has actually a tremendous I, I say that uh with uh with great tongue in cheek but you know getting comments from the listeners from people out there is always uh sort of exciting when i see an email in my uh in my mailbox from somebody that i haven't gotten one before uh, from or with an interesting uh title or something like that i always get sort of nervous it's sort of like Ooh, I wonder what this 
what this person thought about the program, and I wonder if I'm gonna, if they're going to tell me that I suck and that, you know, get a life, or if they say it's good and they got something out of it. So, anyway, I appreciate all that stuff, uh, and I do take it into account. And obviously, if I didn't, I, I wouldn't uh, take it so personally and uh, and try to build it into the show. But uh, but I'm interested in what you guys think of the program, and I'll try to uh, incorporate into that, uh, incorporate those things into it in the future. So, uh, so with that in mind. You can always get in touch with me at Orbit Radio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. That's Orbit Radio at AOL.com. And uh, you can also uh, get me on the web at any given time on, uh, on the web at www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. There's just one O there in the middle, okay? All right, so, yeah, uh, do that. Um, Send me uh, your thoughts, all right? I'd appreciate it, and I'll uh, take it to heart and respond to you, all right? Um, also, in the station here, uh, in the studio, I should say, uh, area code 573-874-5676, 1-800-895-5676 if you're outside of the uh, 573 area code. And reciting these numbers, as I've done so many times recently, uh, I have to thank uh, all of my listeners out there that... Uh, were so kind to reach into their pocketbooks and uh, put their money where their mouth was and uh, support Radio Orbit and KOPN. To all of you out there, you know who you are. Uh, thanks, and you know how much it means to me. And I don't say that uh, lightly. You guys know how much it means to me. So thanks a whole lot, and I appreciate the, the support. For, for those of you who are listening to the program and who uh, did not donate money, maybe you will next time. Uh, in the meantime, just keep listening to the show, okay? And hopefully uh, uh, you'll find it um, uh, worthwhile uh, sometime in the future to uh, to support the station in this program. Okay, uh, we'll do space weather in just a few minutes. But um, who? What else do we have to talk about here? Give out the phone numbers. Um, uh, I'm going to go to break here in just a few minutes when we go to that first break. And I have a couple of uh, I have a couple of things left over from the pledge drive. Uh, in particular, I have a uh, a couple of CDs from the benefit for Terrence McKenna called uh, Journey Through the Spheres and the uh, I don't know we'll decide before I go to break but I'll give a couple of those away uh, at the uh, at the break here and we'll come back and we'll do space weather and we will uh, talk about a couple stories and stuff and um, and then we'll do that interview with uh, with Dr. Castro uh, in just a little while okay okay uh, upcoming guests Next week uh, is Memorial Day week, and I'm not going to be here. I'm going up to Seattle to uh, visit with Kent Stedman uh, from cyberspaceorbit.com. I'll be up there. Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful music festival that goes on every year during Memorial Day weekend. It's called the Folk Life Festival. And uh, Kent will be performing with uh, some other friends of mine up there, and I'll probably bring my dulcimer and guitar and harmonica and Maybe get a chance to sit in with uh, uh, with those guys for some of those uh, some of those fun afternoons at Folk Life. But at, uh, at any rate, I won't be here next Monday. Uh, Casey Oleonic will be doing the show for me uh, as a favor, and uh, Casey does a show on Wednesday nights called Blues in the Night, and he has a wonderful segment actually of his program, uh, the second half of his show, which may be expanding. Who knows? Uh, um, is called Open Mic Radio. He calls it Open Mic Radio, and what he does is uh, goes around town and uh, scours uh, musicians from the 
the corners and the bowels of Columbia and then brings them here on Wednesday evenings and has them on the air live uh, for an hour, uh, the last hour of his program, and he has come up with some real gems. And last week was an absolutely magical uh, night here last Wednesday night. We had a wonderful time with Joss Van Oost from uh, the Netherlands, uh, from Rotterdam, a guy who's a fantastic uh, singer-songwriter who was a contemporary of Richard Thompson and uh, uh, John Martin and Nick Drake uh, when he was still alive. Anyway, he was here and he played uh, for two hours, basically, some 10 or 11 songs that he played live, and we were all here uh, enjoying it, and it was quite an experience. So if you if you haven't heard uh, Casey's show, Blues in the Night, that's Wednesdays at... Uh, uh, 10 o'clock, and open mic radio starts at 11 usually. Anyway, so Casey's going to be doing my show uh, next Monday, and he's quite capable. Uh, I'm not sure what he's going to do. I'll try to have a couple things ready for him, but uh, probably be sort of a casual show, but uh, listen in and and, uh, and see what he has in store for you. All right? Okay, um, the following week, which is June 6th, uh, Nassim, or Nassim, Haramine, Nassim Haramine, the director of the Residence Project, is going to be on the air with me live. And it's sort of confirmed and sort of not. Uh, I've been uh, having sort of some difficulty getting things tied down with him, but I think the most uh, recent exchange has been that, yeah, we're going to do the show on June 6th. So uh, that will either happen or, or it won't. If it doesn't, no big deal. We'll do an open line show or I'll get Kent on the air or something like that. We haven't talked to Kent in a long time, and I definitely want to have... Uh, uh, a chance to talk with him. He's been in Hawaii for the last uh, two or three weeks, and uh, I'm sure he has some interesting tales to tell from there. Uh, doctor, speaking of Hawaii, Dr. Michael Heisen, uh, my uh, my cetacean f- uh, scientist friend, uh, who works uh, or runs the Sirius Institute, uh, doing dolphin communication studies uh, out there. Dr. Michael Heisen and uh, his uh, associate Paradise Newland. They were on the program last November, and uh, we've been chatting recently, and they've got some new and interesting information to share uh, with uh, with the world regarding uh, the status of their their research with uh, with dolphin communication. And let me tell you some really exciting things that are happening. And I'm I'm not uh, uh, again I'm not saying that lightly. Absolutely outrageous uh, stuff that Dr. Heisen is involved with right now. So so that's coming up. And then um, probably on the 13th of June, we're going to have Shu on the air. I've been talking about Shu for a while, and I'd like you all to sort of, uh, those of you who are regular listeners, um, sort of uh, make a note of this because it's a re- it, uh, in order for the show with Shu to be successful, it's going to be highly interactive, and it's going to require a lot of uh, people to call in, and we may even set something up on the web where there's a, a live uh, uh, interaction going on on a, on a forum, for example. Uh, but uh, if we can't pull that off, we certainly need a lot of people to call in because Shu uh, experiments with what he calls subtle energies, and uh, he's a. Uh, we'll tell his story before we get into any of that. But the bottom line is, he's a f- absolutely fascinating guy uh, who lives in the hills of northern Georgia, and um, is pretty much connected to the world by the web and by the web alone and uh, uh, has, uh, has just had some amazing experiences and some uh, some incredible uh, incredible things to share with you guys and I've uh, experienced this myself uh, Shu 
and the abilities that he has. And um, I can only judge it for myself. Uh, but it was uh, uh, every time I've been involved uh, with him, it's been a really interesting and enlightening experience. So uh, Ed Edwards' shoe coming up in uh, in a couple weeks. And if you've ever seen the movie Phenomenon, that strange movie with John Travolta where he gets like struck by lightning and then after that he can uh, recite pi to the three millionth degree or decimal or something like that. At any rate, uh, Shu has sort of a similar story. And in fact, uh, Ken has always said that Phenomenon was based uh, upon the real life story of Shu. Uh, but at any rate, we'll ask him about that when we get him on the air. So, all right, uh, this is Mike in uh, Radio Orbit, KOPN. And uh, we'll come back and do space weather in just a minute. But in the meantime, uh, enjoy this uh, little bit of music here. This is Carbon Leaf. And we'll be back in just a few. Holiday quiet on these streets Except for some stubborn leaves That didn't fall with the fall And now they clatter in vain Holiday sky, midnight clear Wind is high, hard to steer Old muffler rumbles like An old fighter plane In search of some rest In search of a break From a life of tests Where something's always at stake where something's always so far What about my broken car? What about my life so far? What about my dream? What about, what about everything? What about aeroplanes? And what about ships that drank the sea? What about, what about the moon and stars? What about soldier battle scars? And all the anger that they Come away with me and we'll see If I was right on that night That a future was made Before time takes each year Like a knife cuts it clear It's school then work and then life That you sharpen the blade I think about time for fun I think about time for play Then I think about being done With no resume With no left to blame. What about fortune and fame? What about your love to obtain? What about the ring? What about, what about everything? What about aeroplanes and what about ships that drank the sea? What about, what about the moon and stars? What about soldier battle scars and all the anger that they Oh 
So uh, what about everything? Carbon Leaf from, oh, what was the name of that CD? Uh, I think it's called Indian Summer, yeah. All right, uh, this is Mike. You're listening to KOPN, Radio Orbit, 89.5 FM, every Monday, 11 p.m. until 2. You know, i got a couple stories uh, and, and space weather uh, to do here, but I want to get a couple things out of the way that I should do. i got a couple funny stories that I sort of wanted to tell. They're both funny. One of them is funny, ha-ha. The other is funny, strange. Anyway... Uh, we live out sort of in the country, and uh, there's all kinds of different critters running around these days in spring in Missouri. And uh, we have a couple of puppies that uh, you've heard me talk about on the program once in a while. And uh, they're about six, going on seven months now. And they spend a lot of time outside, but they sleep in the house, and uh, they're sort of in-and-out dogs. But anyway, <clears throat> they're always getting into trouble. And recently... They had a uh, encounter with a skunk, and uh, it was it wasn't good for anybody. And I had to leave them. Uh, it was a, just a disaster trying to clean them. And and I was trying to figure out what happened because this skunk came right up very close to our house, uh, which I was sort of surprised that they would do. Uh, but anyway, it turns out that I feed the dogs outside, and um, I have their dog food out there, and the dog food I keep in this sort of uh, metal garbage can container thing, uh, but it's like a, it's a, just like a, your standard metal garbage container, but it's smaller. It only holds like maybe 10 gallons, and it has a lid, and you can lock the lid on it. You know, with the, the handle sort of pulls up and over it. It's not a great lock, but at any rate, uh, you know, I should have known better. But a couple of mornings uh, after the original skunk uh, incident. I went outside and I saw that the that the top from the dog food had been sort of popped off, and I uh, uh, I now have the benefit of hindsight. But at the time, I probably knew what was going on, but I was just being lazy, and I decided, well, uh, I'll, you know, I won't I won't I won't worry about that about bringing the dog food in today. I I sort of made a mental note: you need to bring the dog food inside. And uh, at any rate, uh, that night. Uh, the dogs were in. It was about 9:30, and uh, you know the big problem is that they like to pee and poop in the house still, unless they're you know very uh, comfortable by the time they go to bed. So it's like 10 o'clock, 10:30, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to take the dogs out again, make sure that they're cool for the rest of the night. So I let them out, and they're good. They stay around the house for the most part. Well, gosh, in the next five minutes from then. All hell breaks loose, and the dogs are barking like crazy, and I'm and I'm like, oh my god, what's going on? So I, had, I I walk out myself onto the back deck, right out from my back door. I walk out, and there's a big giant skunk there, and it is, I don't know if it's a he or a she. Uh, I wasn't going to get that close. I got close enough, trust me. And all of us just got sprayed by this skunk, and it was absolutely horrible. And uh, I mean, it was horrible. 
And then the skunk, the skunk would not would not like leave. The skunk wanted to stay there and eat the dog food. And uh, so anyway, it was a, it was just a, a huge uh, drama getting the skunk out of there. And and the dogs, I ended up leaving the dogs outside. And uh, I went in. My wife was totally freaked out because uh, I smelled so bad. And of course, that stench just follows everything everywhere. And it's oily. It's impossible to get off. So uh, at any rate, I get on the web trying to find out how to. Uh, how to get rid of this stuff, and everybody talks about tomato juice, and uh, that does work, but I tell you, there's another way, and here's a cool way uh, to do it. What you do is take um, hydrogen peroxide and baking soda, and you mix those two, and when those two are still foaming, you got to do it pretty much while it's foaming, while it's still active. Uh, put that on your hair, your face, your hands, whatever, and it will neutralize uh, the, the, the skunk... Uh, uh, odor. Anyway, so there's your. Uh, that, this is this is probably a bit uh, that should should have been done on uh, uh, on the Radio Rangers show on Sundays. Uh, maybe I should tell him uh, uh, tell him about it. But at any rate, so there's the skunk story. And now I did move the dog food inside after the fact, and hopefully I don't have to deal with that again uh, because uh, you know you've all you've all smelled a skunk when you've been driving down the road in your car or whatever well have one spray you i mean it's toxic for christ's sake it got on my hands and my hands were burning literally my for like in within 20 seconds of being uh in contact with this with this uh napalm like substance that comes from the the butt or the anterior region of the skunk, I should say, uh, it freaking burns. So anyway, not a pleasant experience, and uh, uh, hopefully I don't have to worry about that too much now uh, since we got the food moved inside. So I wanted to share that with you, and uh, you can uh, commiserate with me if you've ever had uh, a similar incident. Okay, now here's the other funny one, funny strange. One of my best friends, uh, his name is Kenny, and he lives up in Wisconsin, and uh, um, I grew up with him. And he comes out here to visit me now and again. Anyway, he's a close friend. Uh, his mother, it was her 60th birthday on Friday. And the family had never had uh, a surprise birthday f- uh, party for her before or anything like that. And so they did this. They had this surprise birthday party at this facility up in Lodi, Wisconsin. If you've ever been up there, it's pretty cool. Sort of a bunch of lakes and things up there. And they, they've sort of retired up there at Lodi. Um, in Lodi, Wisconsin. So, anyway, uh, her husband, uh, Kenny's dad, and and his mom, Carol, and the rest of the family and friends and all stuff, they arranged this 60th birthday party for Carol, uh, unbeknownst to her. Anyway, so they do it up, and it's a great time, and everybody's having a riot, and uh, Kenny's uh, there, and his dad's all proud, and, you know, introducing him to all his friends and all that stuff, and they're all having a nice time, and Ken's mom says to Clay, that was his father's name, uh, hey, let's let's go dance to this song. I love this song. And uh, so they did. They went out and danced. And at the end of the song, uh, Clay was walking off the dance floor, walking towards my friend Kenny, uh, his son. And he fell down and dropped dead. Just like that. And it was obviously a pretty traumatic and dramatic scene uh, there in Lodi, Wisconsin. Not what everyone was hoping for or expecting, but um, 
but an, but an occurrence nonetheless. And uh, anyway, it's just another another example of uh, the fact that life can throw curveballs at any moment. And sometimes they're fun, and sometimes they're frightening, and sometimes they're devastating, and sometimes they're any number of different uh, experiences in between and around those. But the bottom line is we live in a dynamic world and our lives are dynamic and we change every day and uh, anything can happen at any time. So take it for what it's worth. Enjoy it while you can. Uh, live now or forever hold your peace. This is from our good friend Kenny Bowman and in particular for his father Clay. May you... Uh, Enjoy the trip. By the way, if anybody wants uh, that Terrence McKenna CD, I'm sorry, Terrence McKenna, uh, call me right now, 573-874-5676.
That was the Tragically Hip with Leave. And one more time, that's for Kenny and Clay Bowman. And this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. It's about uh, 11.37 on Monday evening. And it's the 23rd of May. And check out the full moon rising in the east. Pretty cool stuff going on tonight. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Let's do space weather here real fast. Uh, tonight, May 23rd, full moon. Uh, actually, something uh, called a lunar occultation is going to happen tonight, too. What this means is uh, what will happen tonight. The moon is going to glide, sort of slide in front of a, the, the bright star Antares. It's sort of a reddish star. And uh, whenever this happens, astronomers call this a lunar occultation. And uh, the event will be visible across North America. It'll begin just before midnight. Uh, uh, Pacific time, which is about an hour from now. So uh, if you're still up, uh, we do have clear skies tonight, I think. Check out the moon and you'll see it approaching the red star Antares, and then you'll, then you'll see it uh, uh, cover up the star, pass over it, and then Antares will show up on the other side, come out uh, on the tail end of the moon as it passes, uh, uh, relatively speaking, as it passes in front of the star. And again, they call this an occultation. And it's an interesting word. Uh, you know, I'm sort of a word person, and uh, the word occult, you hear, you hear this a lot in the, uh, in the pop culture and again, culture, another word that comes from the same place. But uh, uh, in the pop culture, we hear the word occult, and it's usually spoken of uh, in, uh, in a bad way and looked, on, looked, looked upon with degradation when people talk about the occult. Uh, but uh, the definition of the word, really, uh, all it means is uh, to be hidden or to be occluded. And uh, so they use the same terminology in astronomy when the moon passes in front of a star or a planet or whatever. Uh, they call this an occultation, an occultation, uh, because it is hidden uh, for X amount of time. So the occult uh, is this idea of things that are hidden. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be satanic. It doesn't necessarily have to be... Uh, uh, anything. It's just things that are hidden. And Lord knows there's uh, plenty of occult things happening these days in our uh, in our world. So, okay, anyway, uh, that's going on. And again, in about an hour, if you want to check that out, you can watch it in real time uh, above our heads right here in Columbia, Missouri tonight, okay? Uh, speaking of the moon, uh, the full moon uh, tonight is called a flower moon, uh, according to uh, sort of ancient folklore. Uh, tonight's moon, they call it the flower moon. <coughs> um why? Well, the full moons in May shine down on the abundant flowers of late spring. And in this case, sort of early spring here in Missouri, things uh, have sort of gotten off to a slow start. Um, but uh, at any rate, uh, you can uh, watch the flower moon rise in the east, and uh, it's going to be a beautiful big moon. It's really big up there tonight, too, as it was rising, as I was driving in here to the, here to the station. It was just awesome. So... Um, you know, the, the, most of these moon names date back to Native American terminology, um, most from sort of the northern areas and the eastern areas of the U.S. Uh, the uh, Indian nations up there would give particular names uh, to each full moon uh, to sort of keep track of time and to keep track of the seasons and this sort of thing. Uh, the names... Um, uh, were always uh, 
different variations of moon names, but in general, the same ones uh, were, were used among a, wh- a whole bunch of different uh, groups of uh, Native Americans up in the uh, New England area. Anyway, uh, we sort of followed along with that tradition, the European uh, quote-unquote settlers um, uh, followed that, and uh, uh, some of those uh, uh, names were changed a little bit, but the bottom line is many of those stayed the same, and uh, so that's where a lot of those names come from. And you will also this time of year see some really cool like coronas and and uh, and rings around the moon. I saw it the other night. There was sort of a halo around the moon, and there's some uh, some pretty cool imagery of that stuff. If anybody's interested in uh, looking at it, uh, go over to spaceweather. Dot com where I get a lot of this information, and you can check it out there for yourself, okay? Uh, that's uh, www.spaceweather.com. All right, uh, let's see. And I, I think I mentioned last week about that big aurora storm, that incredible aurora borealis that occurred uh, last weekend, not, uh, not a couple days ago, but uh, a week ago this last weekend, anyway, probably, so I guess eight, nine days ago. But anyway, um, people still talking about it, and some amazing imagery showed up on the web from photos that were taken uh, on both ends of the planet, all the way up uh, toward the poles uh, and, uh, uh, and then down uh, toward the North, North Pole, I should say, and then down uh, in the Antarctic areas, too. Uh, but, man, Aurora Borealis reaching all the way down to, like, Arizona, for Christ's sake. So there were some amazing things, and some of the, some of the imagery from, uh, uh, from Canada was just outrageous. And, again, you can go over to Space Weather and check some of that stuff out if you're interested in it. All right. Um, let's see. What else we want to talk about here? What time we got? We got quarter to 12. And I'm going to start this interview at about 1.30. So let me read a quick story here with regard to space weather because um, uh, then we'll take a, take a break and come back. But anyway, all this stuff is connected, and we talk about uh, the butterfly effect, and we talk about the law of unintended consequences, and I always talk about the connection between the sun uh, and every other object in this solar system and the profound effect that the sun has uh, on, on, on all of those all of those other bodies, but uh, um, a story that uh, caught my eye just yesterday. You know, lots going on in India uh, lately. Ever since uh, December, ever since November, December of last year, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the Indian area. But anyway, re- listen to this: 15,000 evacuated as freak waves strike villages. In southern India, upwards of 15,000 villagers have been forced to flee their homes following a freak wave. Small fishing hamlets in Kerala state were flooded by seawater, prompting fears of a tsunami. Sixteen makeshift camps have been established in-house to house the evacuees, and fishermen have been warned not to take their boats out to sea. It is unclear at this stage what triggered it. So here's another one of these really strange stories. I mean, that's it. It's five short lines. Um... Uh, that was actually on ABC, believe it or not. But I can't find any more information about it. And uh, it's just one of these anomalous things. But anyway, there's very strange things that are happening uh, all over the planet right now. Novelty, as we talk about, is increasing. And uh, uh, sort of uh, um, something that people like me expect and have come to expect now. Uh, but uh, certainly things seem to be... Uh, 
uh, just strange and all kinds of weird things happening all over the place and things speeding up and happening quicker and quicker and we're just sort of uh, watching it all and and it, it just depends on how much you're willing to take you know I mean you can you can find uh, uh, you can find enough to fill every moment of your day of strangeness uh, if you if you want to and it's not fallacy I mean this is these are real things that are happening all over the planet so uh, this connectivity between may, maybe it was always there you know uh, and it's just now this uh, the density of information and the immediacy of communication uh, is now bringing it to the forefront and and we're literally seeing all these things play out right in front of our faces uh, because of the uh, uh, the uh, the information explosion that we're in the middle of right now. So, at any rate, wild stuff going on, and uh, um, I don't know. We'll just uh, we'll just keep watching and talk about it here on this program. We'll do more uh, in just a few minutes. Okay. Um, Carlos Castro, Dr. Carlos Castro, in 45 minutes or thereabouts. And in the meantime, I'm doing sort of a retrospective thing tonight. I don't know why, but I'm playing all this old music. So here's some more uh, old music. This is Rush from Permanent Waves. And uh, this is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN. I'll be back in just a few minutes.
this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And uh, my friend Angela showed up just uh, back from the Deke Dickerson show down at Mojo's tonight, and apparently they had a nice time, and uh, everybody enjoyed the show. Deke, obviously, lots of energy, like he always does down there, picking the guitar. So anyway, uh, Angela, uh, if you've never heard her program, she does uh, a jazz show on Thursday nights from 8 until 10 called the good sounds of jazz and uh, she does it up nicely so check out angela's show every thursday uh from eight to ten all right and uh let's see all right here's an interesting story that i wanted to read and it doesn't require much introduction here's the title laser could rival energy from the sun okay laser could rival energy from the sun this is May 21st uh, from uh, Lawrence Livermore, California. Ed Moses talks of the grand challenge that has consumed him for the past five years, comparing it to trying to hit the strike zone with a baseball from 350 miles away or tossing a dime into a parking meter from 40 miles. That's the precision we have to have, says Moses. Interesting name, too. Uh, the director of a high-energy physics adventure to produce the world's most powerful laser, one that scientists hope will create in a laboratory the energy found at the center of the sun. I'm picturing Moses on the mount now with the burning bush or something like that. At any rate, uh, in a building the size of a football stadium, engineers have assembled the framework for a network of 192 laser beams, each traveling 1,000 feet to converge simultaneously on a target the size of a pencil eraser. The trip will take one thousandth of a second during which the light's energy is amplified many billions of times to create a brief laser pulse a thousand times the electric generating power of the entire United States. The goal is to create unimaginable heat, 180 million degrees Fahrenheit, and intense pressure from all directions on a BB-sized hydrogen fuel pellet, compressing it to one-thirtieth of its size. The result, the scientists hope, will be a fusing of atoms so that more energy is released than is generated by the laser beam, something scientists call fusion ignition. It's what happens when a hydrogen bomb explodes. Four of the beams have been tested. When completed in 2008, the National Ignition Facility, or NIF as it's called, as as the laser at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories uh, will dwarf many times over any laser to date. There you go. You know, uh, what do you say about a story like that? Listen, you know, this thing where it says there's a framework of 192 lasers that will all uh, be beamed c to converge on one thing. It reminds me of, like, uh, you know, there's a new Star Wars movie out uh, right now, and re it reminds me of the Death Star when uh, it would fire up its laser when it was going to destroy a planet or whatever, and it was like uh, it was like a number of lasers in a series, a circular uh, pattern, and then those lasers would fire up and direct their beams into a central uh, a, a focal point, uh, at which point the primary beam was then generated from all these other beams. It sounds exactly like something like that to me, and I can't imagine a nice way to use uh, something like that. But uh, at any rate, uh, 
uh, whether we get frustrated by the technology or not, uh, it is amazing the stuff that is happening right now uh, in technology. And uh, it's just a matter of the, uh, uh, the implementation uh, and how this technology gets implemented. Is it implemented with fear uh, and, uh, and aggression or in some other manner? Real wild stuff and uh, relevant to the conversation that you're going to hear in about a half an hour uh, between myself and Dr. Carlos Castro. Uh, that's coming up again uh, in just a half an hour. Uh, it's the top of the hour right now, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan, and it's KOPN 89.5 FM uh, from Mid-Missouri. We're the source for in-depth news, for great talk, music of the world. More than radio, it's your listener-sponsored, listener-supported community radio station, your imagination station, KOPN, and that's what it's about, the imagination, and that's what we're talking about all the time on this program. So uh, uh, for those uh, who have some imagination, get on the phone and give me a call right now. We've got a few extra minutes. Uh, I've got one more thing that I'm going to read. I actually have two more things that I'm going to read uh, uh, before uh, I do that interview with Dr. Castro, but... Uh, uh, I can zip through those or I can stretch them out depending on what I have to do. So uh, if you're up for it and uh, you've got a question or a comment or just want to say hi, give me a call uh, and I'll put you on the air here. The number is uh, 573-443-8255. That's 443-8255. Uh, give me a call if you'd like. Uh, if not, I'll just, uh, I'll just move, things, uh, move things right along, okay? All right. Uh, let's see here. Um, I'm going to read another story here that has to do with the Big Bang or maybe an alternate way of looking at the Big Bang. And again, relevant to the, to, the, uh, to the interview that you're going to hear in a half an hour or so with Dr. Carlos Castro, um, but just uh, relevant in general to sort of the times that we're living in. And the guy that wrote this, um, I think his name is Manus, Michael Manus, I think. But anyway, he's a real interesting guy, and I've been reading some of his... Um, uh, some of his other material on the web, and I think he's a guy that I might approach uh, to see if he'd like to come on this program and talk with us because he's a real interesting guy. And um, well, I'll let you let your I'll, I'll let you make your own uh, your own decision on what you think of this, but I'll read it for you here. And um, in the meantime, oh hey, I wanted to mention too about the web. I had a little trouble um, with my server and uh, getting the website updated uh, for this week's show. And so uh, if you go to the web right now, it still has uh, the show from last week, Dr. Barbara Tedlock and her husband, Dr. Dennis Tedlock. Uh, that's still on the home page there. And uh, I apologize, but I've got to talk to uh, the guy that hosts my, um, my website and tell him, hey, something's up. I can't, uh, I can't upload my new stuff to the, to the server. And as soon as I get that worked out, uh, I'll do that, and I'll have all these links up uh, that are relevant to the show tonight. Uh, and... Um, uh, you'll hear some of the website addresses and stuff uh, that come up during the interview. All right, but all that stuff uh, will be and always is available on the web at www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com, and uh, you can email me at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. All right? All right, this piece is, uh, again, from uh, Michael Manis, and it's uh, uh, from a website that's called The Golden Frog. So you figure that out. All right. Uh, the Big Bang Theory, a new perspective. And uh, this is quite long. Uh, it'll take a few minutes for me to, ride through, uh, to read through it. So if you're uh, 
if you uh, if you want to call, just uh, feel free to go to go ahead and call me at four four three eight two five five, and um, I'll I'll take a break uh, and grab your call if I see the phone ringing. Okay. All right, the Big Bang Theory, a new perspective. Today, the Big Bang Theory of modern physics states that prior to the existence of space and time, the manifestation of the universe began with a huge explosion. Space and time came into existence, and the material world expanded in size and complexity at an exponential rate, reaching out to create a huge universe filled with galaxies, size unimaginable, and still expanding. The seed or source of that entire process is referred to as the unified field. Einstein was the first to theorize its existence. It is the one thing out of which all else came into existence. It is the source of the Big Bang. It's fascinating to note that a number of leading modern physicists who focus on the Big Bang theory speculate that the unified field is, in fact, nothing more than consciousness. The more they study the qualities, nature, and characteristics of the unified field, the more they realize the unified field is nothing more than consciousness itself. Throughout history, the manifestation of our universe has been pondered. An interesting common thread exists between many, if not all, of the most time-honored of those theories. That common thread is expressed in shamanism by the saying, this is all a dream. In Hindu philosophy, they refer to it as maya, that is to say, illusion. The ancient Vedic seers similarly claim this is all just a play of consciousness. These ancient philosophies go on to say that the entire manifest universe is born of and sustained by consciousness. Consciousness from within its own inherent nature gives birth to the structure of the entire universe. Remarkably, Many modern physicists are speculating that what the ancient seers insisted is in fact correct. Consciousness is the underlying source and basis for all existence. Now for a moment, let's assume that they are correct and take a moment to reflect. A question comes to mind. Quite simply, what is it that we know about consciousness? At first glance, it may seem self-evident to say that consciousness by its very own nature is conscious, but with a little further reflection about the Big Bang Theory and the manifestation of existence, we are prompted to ask another question. Before anything existed, what could consciousness possibly have been conscious of? Remember, we are speaking here of a time that existed before time and a place that existed before space. It was a time of no-thingness, pure nothingness, Consciousness could be viewed then as pure isness before anything actually was. So, what could consciousness possibly become conscious of? The only thing that existed itself, consciousness. By its own nature, consciousness became conscious of itself. By putting all of this together, we arrive at a compelling perspective on the Big Bang theory. Consciousness viewed itself as other. Duality was born of oneness. It is a little like when you're brushing your teeth in the bathroom and you catch your own reflection in the mirror out of the corner of your eye. For a moment, you have the experience that another person is there with you, though really, it's only your own reflection because consciousness is by its own nature conscious. It becomes conscious of that duality, those two things. Then consciousness, the observer, the observed duality that was created in that moment it was as if a third thing is born. Consciousness, in turn, became aware of those three things and gave birth to a fourth. 
That process cascaded into an infinite multiplicity in a nanosecond. It is similar to holding two mirrors up in front of one another. Instantly, an infinite number of mirrors come into view. So the Big Bang that gave birth to the entire uh, universe is nothing more than the dynamic interaction of consciousness with itself. It has a structure of complete mathematical precision, profoundly complex, yet totally harmonious and seamlessly integrated within the dynamic of its own self-interaction. Imagine visualizing this structure geometrically. It would appear similar to the image in a kaleidoscope, but multidimensional and far more complex. It is easy to imagine that there are a myriad of identifiable patterns within the structure. Like that, different patterns can be identified within the structure of existence. Each pattern describes the structure of the universe in its own terms. Modern physics represents only one example, the yin and the yang theory, five element theory, the nine graha theory, these are other examples. They all each represent a unique pattern which describes the structure of the existence. To give a sense of the depth and breadth of the implications here, imagine we were to find an old three, 33 and a third RPM record in a time when we no longer had record players and had forgotten that records ever even existed. Scientists could analyze and document every etching on that piece of plastic. Formula recording the size and shape of every scratch on the surface could be created. And the scientists could then conclude that they had thoroughly determined the nature of that piece of plastic. However, when the record is played, it takes on a whole new meaning. The nature of existence embodies a similar tale. Finding one pattern that describes its nature, though of value, does not fully embrace its grandeur. Each identical pattern carries its own unique expression, offering new insights and understanding. As Einstein said, you can, you can describe a sunset in terms of pure physics, but if you do, it loses its meaning. Each identifiable pattern gives expression to some of the meaning, but no one pattern gives expression to the full depth and breadth of all possible meanings. The implications of this new perspective on the Big Bang Theory are vast. The technologies available are without limits. Each identifiable pattern carries with it unique technology. The key to many unopened doors is contained within this understanding, offering common sense insights into many age-old questions, including the meaning of life, the free will, ver the, uh, free will versus predetermination paradox, and the age-old quandary, is there a God, and why does he, if there's a God, why does he allow people to suffer? Ignorance means to ignore. To rigidly adhere to one paradigm and ignore the others is a state of ignorance. Finding truth and meaning in a broad spectrum of paradigms is the portal to wisdom. Anyway, that is uh, a piece, yeah, from, uh, from a guy who runs a website called The Golden Frog. And I found it pretty interesting and sort of along the same lines of uh, uh, some of the things that I uh, seem to think these days. So I thought I'd read it. And uh, again, it's relevant to the uh, discussion that we have uh, in just a few minutes with Dr. Carlos Castro. And I think what I will do is, uh, uh, I think I'll read this last piece, and we'll get right to the interview. I think it's sort of a slow night tonight. Nobody's calling in, uh, so you probably just want me to get on with the show here. So uh, let's do that. I'm going to read one introductory piece, and then we'll get to uh, my uh, interview with Dr. Carlos Castro in uh, just a couple of minutes here. But let me read this thing here first. 
And uh, this is the uh, uh, this is a statement by uh, Nobel laureate Louis de Broglier uh, from April 25th, 1978. And I want to use it to uh, uh, to set up the interview that's coming in just a couple of minutes. All right, all right. Um, Here we go. Let me do the ID real fast, too. Uh, Mike Hagen, Radio Orbit, K-O-P-N. And I'm sorry I'm sniffling and stuff, but my allergies are, like, totally getting the best of me right now. And, in fact, I feel like sneezing right into the microphone. Uh, but uh, I'm going to do my best not to do that as to not offend uh, the... Uh, the programmers that have to sit in this uh, in this chair after me, but at any rate, I'll try to get through this without uh, uh, without sneezing. Okay. The history of science teaches that the greatest advances in the scientific domain have been achieved by bold thinkers who perceived new and fruitful approaches that others failed to notice. If one had taken the ideas of these scientific geniuses who have been the promoters of modern science and submitted them to committees of specialists, there is no doubt that the latter would have viewed them as extravagant and would have discarded them for the very reason of their originality and profundity. As a matter of fact, the battles waged, for example, by Fresnel and Pasteur, uh, suffice to prove that some of these pioneers ran into a lack of understanding from the side of eminent scholars which they had to fight with vigor before emerging as the winners. More recently, in the domain of theoretical physicists, of which I can speak with knowledge, the magnificent novel conceptions of Lorentz and Planck, and particularly Einstein, also clashed with the incomprehension of eminent scientists. The new ideas here triumphed. But in proportion, as the organization of research becomes more rigid, the danger increases that new and fruitful ideas will be unable to develop freely. Let us state in a few words the conclusion to be drawn from the foregoing. While by the very force of circumstances, research and teaching are weighed down by administrative structures and financial concerns and by the heavy armature of strict regulation and planning, it becomes more indispensable than ever to preserve the freedom of scientific research and the freedom of initiative for the original investigators because these freedoms have always been and will always remain the most fertile sources for the grand progress of science. And again, that's the statement of Nobel laureate Louis de Broglier, April 25th, 1978. Please keep that in mind as you listen to the interview that's coming up with Dr. Carlos Castro. This is Mike Hagan. You listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN. I'll be back in just a minute with that interview. In the meantime, this is the Indigo Girls. This song is called Galileo.
Good evening, and welcome back to Radio Orbit. I'm Mike Hagan, your host as always, and tonight my guest is Dr. Carlos Castro. Dr. Castro has a Ph.D. in physics from the University of Texas at Austin, did undergraduate work at MIT, and uh, he has all the right pedigrees, if you know what I mean. And uh, tonight Dr. Castro and I are going to be talking about one of the sort of darker sides of science, uh, uh, a side of science that's uh, more interested in it seems things like prestige and power and control than they really are in science, but what we're going to be talking about is censorship and suppression in science, uh, among other things. And so Dr. Carlos uh, Castro has an incredible story, very interesting one that he's going to share with us tonight. And without further delay, we will welcome him to the program. Uh, Dr. Castro, welcome to Radio Orbit. Thanks very much for being with us tonight. Yes, thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome, and uh, I want to say a quick thank you uh, up front to Dr. Paul LaViolette, uh, who put 
Dr. Castro and I uh, in touch with one another and help sort of facilitate this interview tonight. Dr. Laviolette is an associate of, uh, of yours, and I'm sure that uh, we'll talk a little bit about archive freedom and that sort of thing as we get, uh, get into this tonight. So, um, first of all, let's, uh, let's do a little bit of background. Let's tell the, uh, the, the listeners and the audience here a little bit about you, about your background, where you came from, how you came up through uh, the, uh, uh, the physics ranks, as it were, or, the, or, the, or, the, or, the, or the, the world of science and how you got involved in all, everything that you got involved in and where it sort of, we're just going to tell the whole story about where it led and where we are today. So why don't we just start at the beginning? Yes, well, um, I was born in Colombia, you know, in Bogota, Colombia, South America. Okay. And I spent most of my developing years in Europe, in Spain, England, and Scandinavia. And before coming to the U.S., I, I studied um, the first two years of aeronautical engineering in Madrid, Spain, at the Polytechnic in Madrid. And then I came to the U.S., I went to... Boston, I'm in Cambridge, and I finished my undergraduate in physics at MIT, and my undergraduate uh, thesis advisor was Professor Philip Morrison, who is a very renowned scientist. Right, right. You know, he worked in the Manhattan Project when he was very, very young. That's right. And I mean, he's an emeritus professor at this moment. I mean, he's not that young anymore. But, you know, he's a very remarkable scientist. So after that, um, I, um, I got my Ph.D. at the University of Texas in Austin. And my Ph.D. Ad advisor was Yuval Neiman, who is also a very renowned Israeli scientist, because he and Mira Gilman were the ones who came up with the idea of quarks, you know, that sure. they were crucial to understand the strong interaction. And after that, well, after Texas, I went to many other places, and um, until I ran into this problem with the electronic archives that were run at Los Alamos, and now they are run at the Cornell by Cornell University. All right. Well, let, 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 yeah. let's talk yeah. a little bit about about the archives and what what they re for for people who aren't familiar with it. What what are they and uh, and why are they critical uh, for uh, for research uh, research driven scientists and physicists like yourself? What what how do they fit into the whole uh, the whole puzzle? Well, the archives is is the bloodline of theoretical physics and mathematics. And also, they are running a biology and computer science and nonlinear science. So essentially, you publish or you perish, and this is a source of vital information where people from anywhere in the world can access at any moment and get information on what goes on a daily basis on you know in research in the world. Okay, so the archives. So by bloodline, I mean it's, it's, it's basically this is what I mean. Yeah. So the archive, though, is open to the public. The, the archives, yes, it, it's funded. Yeah, it was by the taxpayers' money. Okay. By the National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, who are the ones, and also University of California, who were running the Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico. I think they are still under, under the supervision of the University of California. So this is a public-funded institution. Okay. And the founder of the archives, uh, 
in Spark at the time in Los Alamos, you know, was able to use the computer facilities at the Los Alamos laboratory in New Mexico, you know, which is essentially paid for by the taxpayers. And this is Paul Ginspark, right? Yeah, Paul Ginspark. Okay. And um, they never, I mean, uh, this was an open forum, and they never, never, in their developing of these archives, they never stated any clause that, you know, uh, stipulating what are the conditions or preconditions to post papers in these archives. Okay. So the bottom line, yes, it is an open public forum paid by the taxpayers. And how long has it been in sort of operation? How, how long have... Since how long 1991. Have 1991. So for yes. almost 15 years, this has been sort almost of the pri- years. and it, and and that's sort of the primary mode now of of information sharing and transfer. Uh, for the physics world, yes. Okay, so that's yes. where that's where everybody meets yes. and so talks. Yes, it, it, it has supplanted the the, the journals in, in delivering information among scientists. Give us uh, again for the people who aren't real familiar with the yes. with the process. Why don't you compare that a little bit to the way it used to be done? How before 1991 and before the internet and this sort of thing? How how did what was the process to get a paper published or whatever? Well, usually uh, before the paper was submitted to a journal, what many scientists did is they sent out uh, preprints to several institutions all over the world. And this was done by regular mail. Okay. And the idea is to share this information before being published. You know, was was to get some feedback back and forth from scientists all over the world. Because usually, when you submit a paper to a journal, it takes months, many many months, before the paper is published. You know, first of all, you have to go through the editor, and then you have to go through a peer review process. Okay. It can be very painful and very lengthy, right. and it usually takes a long time, unless, of course, you know you have good stature and good connections, and of you course. get you know, priorities to publish your paper first. Right. So no different than any any other sort of field of endeavor. In in many cases, it's who you know and uh, yeah. uh, and that sort of yeah. thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, now, uh, by having these electronic archives, you know this. It's an instantaneous communications, where instead of dealing with you know having to print many many copies of your paper, right. having to go to the post office and mail them all over the world, it, it saves an incredible amount of time, money, paper. So this speeded very up. Expedient. Right. So it speeded up the process. Uh, oh yeah, tremendously. Speed. All right. So um, so that's where we're at now. And 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 in the in the early 90s, you obviously got involved. Uh, with the archive and began to use it like uh, like like so your peers were, were were using it. Okay, all right. So problems. and and what uh, so how did that progress? What happened then? Yes. So I think the the sad day arrived. I think in the fall of 1999. 1999. And when I submitted a mainstream paper to Nuclear Physics B, which is one of the top journals in my field. Physical review letters and nuclear physics B are probably the top rated journals at that moment. Right, they call it they call it NPB. Is that right? Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. And this is you know run you know by Elsevier Publishing Company in Holland. In Holland, right? In 
Poland. So actually, then the paper was actually um, accepted by the two referees. Usually, the, that you have two or three referees who, who handle uh, nuclear physics B. So I got nice uh, reviews from the from the two referees. They, you know, they recommended the paper for publication. Okay. So I got an, a, you know, a message from the journal asking me to send them, a, you know, a latex or text file of my paper for processing. You know, and that was it. Everything went smoothly. But then, uh, about three months later, I received a highly suspicious declination letter from the from the editorial board that they were not going to publish my paper because a member of the editorial board uh, didn't like it, something hmm. like that. I think I know who this person is, you know, but I cannot prove it. No, he, I think he's a professor at Caltech. Okay. I was at the moment in Berkeley, but I cannot prove it because all this is very secret. But the bottom line is that you know, after the referees say yes, I send them all the paperwork. A few months later, they, they slap me in the face, and they, they say, no, we're not going to publish it. So the co-director of my center and I wrote a very nice, polite letter of inquiry, you know, you know, what is going on? Uh, how come uh, the referees say yes and now you say no? So what they did is they wrote back an even more insulting letter. Dr. Castro, yeah. um, where where were you at the time? What, what yeah, is, I was in Atlanta. Okay, so you were working out yeah, of... Yeah, the Center for Theoretical Studies of Physical Systems in, at Clark Atlanta University. Okay. In Atlanta, Georgia, yes. So essentially got back this insulting letter from Nuclear Physics B, oh no, 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 we're not going to publish it, blah, 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 blah. And by the way, we have looked at the recent work by you know, Carlos Castro that he has posted in the archives, the Los Alamos archives, and we found this work to be outlandish, uh, which in a sense it was ridiculous because the mainstream paper that I had submitted to Nuclear Physics B had nothing to do with what I had posted in the internet. But in any case, uh, that was the end of the story, you know, a slap in the face uh, with further insults in a certain way. And lo and behold, one week later, after I got this nasty response from Nuclear Physics B, is when my troubles with Ginsburg began. Okay. In other words, so it, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to put two and two together and realize that it was the editorial board of Nuclear Physics B who contacted Ginsberg and warned him, watch out for this Carlos Castro, he's writing papers that are outlandish. And that was the beginning, you know, the beginning of the end. Ever, ever since that moment, my travels with Ginsberg began. And, wow. you know, then this, this incident, um, with nuclear physics B occurred in the fall of 99, and my problems with Ginsburg began in February 2000. Uh, my blacklisting uh, began. All right, well, t tell me briefly what, what the mainstream paper was uh, Oh, the mainstream paper actually turned out that, that I, I published it in, uh, in the Journal of Classical and Quantum Gravity. So it did get published. It's an excellent journal run by in Britain by the Institute of Physics in England. Okay. So that paper, I did some revisions and was published in classical and quantum gravity. Yes. Okay. And it was a mainstream paper. You know, it's 
string theory, right. quantum field theory, it was you know, mainstream, you know, caution, as they say. All right, so the nothing controversial, nothing revolutionary. All right, so the so the question so the question becomes: Did the the other material that you had posted on the archive yes. uh, uh, become something that 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 stuck in somebody's craw and and yeah. and and then made them react to to basically yeah, any, yeah, any well, of your work? Yeah, well, they could see that. You see, I for many many years I've been working on on an an, an extensions of relativity theory, you know, based on work that actually Heisenberg did in, 19, you know, in, 19, in the late 20s. Right, in the late 20s, sure. Heisenberg proposed you know, in the 1920s that there may be a minimal length in nature, uh, you know, below which you can never, never detect, you know, you know, like, you know, Einstein assumed that the speed of light in the vacuum was the maximal invariant attainable speed in nature. So Heisenberg, you know, thought uh, that maybe quantum mechanics uh, was going to select a minimal scale, which is, you know, what uh, you call the Planck scale, mm -hmm. which is a very, very, very tiny right. scale, which is to the atom what a tree is to the universe. <laughs> so then in the 80s, wow. there was a French uh, phys astrophysicist called Laurent Notal who worked on fractals for many years, and he developed the idea of scale relativity where you incorporate, you know, the speed of light and also the the notion of scales. Right. You know, as you go to smaller smaller scales, eventually you reach a threshold point beyond which you can never go below. So the, then I use um, those ideas to develop my own extended relativity in what I call Clifford spaces, where not only the notion of velocity has a maximal, but you also have a minimal and an upper length scale, and in addition to that, you also can play with the dimensions of objects. Hmm. So in this physical theory, you could have a one-dimensional object uh, transmute into a ten-dimensional object, Interesting. and transmute into a five-dimensional object, or a two-dimensional object, and so forth. So my motivation was precisely to find the physical foundations of string theory, or M theory, or F, or F theory, as they've been called today. Right. M, you know, they stands for mystery, mother <laughs> theory, and F stands for father theory. So my idea was to to propose that this extended relativity in Clifford spaces was could be the underlying physical foundations of string theory. Because you see, the problem with string theory it has been in existence for more than 35 years. Right. But nobody knows what it is. It is. Right. If you ask people what is string theory, nobody will be able to tell you. This Gosh, reminds you, you me know. of religion for thousands of years. Everybody talks about God. To define God, nobody knows what God is. The reason they don't know what, what string theory is is because they, they, they lack the physical underlying geometrical foundation of the theory. Uh, like, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity was based on the principle of equivalence, you know, and the principle of general covariance. But string theory has no principle, no physical foundation behind it. So this is what I was trying to do. And this is why this was incendiary to, you know, to the alpha males <laughs> of science.
you know, uh, in Princeton, sure. Harvard, and sure. So this was uh, so, okay. So that was the nature of the post and the archive that 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 uh, that got everybody uh, up, up incendiary. Yes, yeah. incendiary. Okay. Now you reminded me of a couple things when uh, as, as you were speaking there, and you you remind me of what I think about of the importance of language. And you talk about how, how if you ask anybody what string theory is, nobody knows what the hell it is. You know, you, you, you could take that even to a further level. And, yes. and yes. you know, if, if I picked five people randomly on the street and gave them uh, 30 seconds to describe to me what an atom was, yes. they, it would be preposterous. I would, get, I would get five answers, and I'm sure that not one of them would, would hold a candle to the orthodox description. Yes. And, and so I... I I recognize that one of the big problems in all of this is language and 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 yes. the, and no, but here we we go beyond language. It's not a, it's not a question of language, uh, but is is uh, understanding what is the geometrical principle behind mm -hmm. the theory. Um, you see, I, I remember a few years ago uh, when Ed Whitten was visiting Texas. You know, I asked him this very precise question, and he said that that question is in the red zone. Huh. And yes, of course. I mean, you have all these programs on NOVA by Brian Green at Columbia, you know, with beautiful pictures to our program on, you know, on his books. Uh, you know, I think he's written like two books, which is essentially is a marketing pitch for the string theory community. But actually, the books are very well written, you know, and, and so you have pictures of... of of strings like the strings of a guitar, sure. wiggling, pulsating, vibrating right, around. Right, right. You know, th yeah, this is a mental picture that people have. Right. No, no, but I'm I'm going deeper okay. than that. I'm, okay. You know, you see, Einstein came with the field of relativity. You know, thinking of, of an elevator, right? If you have a person inside an elevator and the and the elevator is being accelerated upwards, you feel an acceleration downwards right. that mimics acceleration of gravity. So this is how he came up with the idea of the principle of equivalence in order to form formulate the theory of relativity. And the idea of covariance, that all the physical laws should be look the same in every frame of reference. So something like this is lacking in string theory. This is what I'm talking about. Okay. All right. So this extended theory of relativity in Clifford Spaces was, uh, you know, a preliminary attempt to lay the foundations of this string theory of from underneath, not from above. Right. Like today, for example, we don't understand quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is basically more than a hundred years old. Quantum mechanics has become a bunch of rules and recipes that people use to calculate things. But we don't understand quantum mechanics deeply when you look at the philosophical and, and uh, foundations. Of course, there's mathematical foundations based on Hilbert spaces that uh, von Neumann at, Har at Princeton, 30s, developed. But, you know, quantum field theory and quantum mechanics are nothing but a group, uh, a set of rules that people. But I want to go deeper than that. Right. I've thought for a long yeah. time that, that the implications of quantum mechanics and quantum physics and, and Bell non-locality have yeah. never really been accepted or, 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 or uh, involved in, 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 the, in the pushing of the envelope of science. They, they, they talk about them all the time, but the implications of them are never incorporated, it seems. No, no, no. It's, 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 it, even Feynman, you know, Feynman was very wise, and he recognized that nobody understood quantum mechanics. And I'm sure the Iraq as well, you know, 
because of course the quantum mechanics is you know when you learn it at the university you know you just get a bunch of books and you just follow a bunch of rules and prescriptions you know but uh, no no but uh, but uh, one has to go deeper than that mm -hmm. going back to quantum mechanics david bohm uh, mm -hmm. was attacked viciously when he developed his ideas of quantum mechanics of hidden variables and uh, Oppenheimer has a very famous phrase. He said to everybody, even if we cannot disprove Bohm, we all must choose to ignore him. So this is what happens, you know, when they cannot disprove what you are saying, they, just they choose to ignore you, which is a very childish way of dealing with things. So wow. David Bohm had to leave the U.S. I think he went to Brazil. and He was ostracized for many, many years. Yeah, until his death. I think that's a good time to mention archive freedom. Um, the uh, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the program, uh, the way that uh, Dr. Castro and I got in touch was uh, through a gentleman whose name is Dr. Laviolette. But uh, both of them are involved in an operation and an organization that's called uh, Archive Freedom, and you can find them on the web at www.archivefreedom.org. And what this is is really a collection. Of, uh, of scientists uh, like yourself who all have experienced uh, similar stories and are trying to band together and to work together to, uh, 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 to, to create some sort of a counterbalance against uh, what, what, what seems to be a pretty good description of what I would call a priesthood. Like you, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned the words alpha males. And what this is to me is d just an extension of the masculine-dominated uh, patriarchal hierarchy that we see in so many different areas of our society. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, the, I talk about the new inquisition like Giordano Bruno and Galileo went through in the Catholic Church. Sure. So today we are in the same, the same position. I mean, if you look at the nickname that they give Ed Whitten at Princeton, they call him the Pope. You know, I mean, I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant scientist. There's no doubt about that. But you know, but this idea of calling someone the Pope right. gives you tells you where we are. Yeah, yeah. So we live in the in the in times of a new inquisition. Absolutely. Well, well, well let, let's yeah. let's expand on that a little bit. Tell, uh, you know, may, may, again, maybe some of the listeners don't even know what the old inquisition was. And let's talk a little bit about about the past and maybe yeah. about how how the how the how the present really is much more like the past than people like to uh, like to admit. Yes. Well, I, I think people have a, a, a misconception of scientists. You know, they confuse intelligence with being nice. <laughs> I mean, all of us know know that it's in, you know it's nice to be important, but I think it's more important to be nice. And many average person they think that you know scientists because they're intelligent, they are nice people. But I mean, of course, you find nice people everywhere. I mean, sure. I'm not saying that all scientists are not nice, but but um, when you you know when the ego gets involved. When um, the scientific quest becomes a rat race for fame, power, and money, especially nowadays, that there are no experiments whatsoever that can be done to test many of these theories. So we are running into a, a dark period of science because unless you have some astrophysical observations, of course, 
the the universe is the best laboratory we have. Right. But 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 now the particle physics has been stagnated for many many years, and many of the and so there are no experiments to test the validity of these theories. So as a result of that, and as a result of constraints in funding, you know, people develop their own turfs, their own gangs. You know, so in a certain way, you know. In order, you know, and they have their friends in Washington. Sure. They have their friends at the National Science Foundation, at the Department of Energy. So, because, of course, they will need control of the money bag, of the money that has been allotted for research. So, you're fighting for power, you're fighting for money, and um, you don't want to be threatened by new paradigms and new ideas, because some of these people have very comfortable, cushy jobs. At, at the ivory towers, right. they get paid tremendous amounts of money, and they have a, a, a carte blanche, you know, when they receive grants from you know all sorts of institutions. So any revolutionary ideas that threatens the status quo, of course they they, and of course because they have no experiments to support anything, then they they suppress them, they crush them, and they indoctrinate the young, brilliant students. Of course, it's very hard for a, a young, brilliant student to to follow his own path. He needs a mentor, he needs a PhD advisor. So he has to be part of the system. Obviously, go against the system, you know, and try to toy with radical new ideas because, you know, he doesn't want to take the risk. He wants to do the same thing, which is to side with the powerful, follow the rules, and just be indoctrinated. Well, you know, uh, when I was um, when I was in college myself, I, I have a bachelor's degree in mathematics, and I studied physics, and I speak uh, German, and I have degrees and all of those things. And and yes. one of the reasons that I elected to not continue with with my at least, uh, uh, at least officially through an institution like a college or something. Yeah. The reason I decided not to was because, and this was back in the mid-80s, and I recognized at that time, at least for me, that there was no imagination that was, th- th- that was being allowed. And, that, uh, a- and I was all about the imagination and trying new ideas and new things, regardless if they may be proved wrong. I just wanted to find that, you know, I wanted to try different things. And, yeah, and yeah. because I thought that's the way that we, we make new discoveries is by trying yeah. crazy things. And so at any rate, uh, I was very frustrated with it, even at, even at, a, uh, uh, at the bachelor degree level and at the, and at the first year of, of uh, graduate level, you know. Yeah, well, it has become, well, science has a pecking order, a hierarchy, you know, from, sure. you know, like the Catholic Church. I understand that because we are humans and we are social beings, you know, these kind of problems are always going to arise among human beings. It's like relationships between, you know, people, you know, men, women, marriages. I mean, friction is unavoidable. I understand that there's always conflicts, and there will always be conflicts among humans. But when you are, you know, in quest of the truth, you should set your ego aside and and be more humble, and you know, and open your mind. I mean, there's a very famous French proverb uh, which says, "The human mind is like a parachute." 
it only works if it's if it is open. <laughs> and and this is very true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, going back to what you were saying uh, about your own own history, you were talking about you, you study mathematics and German, and then you got a bad feeling about the whole world of academia. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, like I said, there are exceptions. I mean, you meet nice people everywhere, but the way it is run nowadays, is, it's very, very corrupt. Not only because it's cruel and merciless, but corrupt because uh, you know it's many, many millions and billions of dollars are at stake. You know there are many scientific projects that will cost millions or billions of dollars. You know? right. And if there is a hint a priori that maybe the theory may be wrong, then of course uh, you know you are threatening uh, you know these people from receiving millions and billions of dollars. You know, right. you know what I mean? So they right. they are protecting their interests. Well, the, like any the, tribe will do. All right, uh, and it, it's yes. the the, yep. the the irony is that is that every theory that we've ever known of in the past has eventually been superseded by a new one, and and so these yes. ideas th these ideas that that, yes. that 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 they have all of the answers and everything figured out is just absurd. Yet that's the way everything is treated. It seems like to me. Yes, yes. I mean, actually. Uh, use the word the theory of everything it's, it's an oxymoron right. because in order to have the theory of everything we need to know everything about everything right which is which is impossible which is ridiculous yeah yeah no so yeah i i agree going back to the 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 blacklisting of science the bottom line is that i'm not the only one there it appears there could be hundreds of scientists whose work is removed from the from the internet, who are not allowed to post their papers in the archives that now are being run by Cornell University. Okay. And to the point that many many of us filed federal lawsuits against Paul Ginsburg and against Cornell University and all the people that run this organization. And um, I was in New York State a few months ago in July. At Elmira, New York, which is like 45 minutes from Cornell, and I met with my lawyers because we were thinking of filing a class action lawsuit against Cornell in New York State. Mm -hmm. Because what happens, the previous lawsuits were filed in Tennessee, in Georgia. They were not filed in New York State. So, therefore, these lawsuits were dis dismissed, and not on the grounds mm. of merits of the case, right. but on jurisdiction in mm, the technicality but yeah but then I went to, you know I met uh, my lawyers but the problem is that this was going to cost a tremendous amount of money uh, because you're dealing with uh, with very powerful university right. very powerful organization right right that it's very you know you, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars will have cost and the president of Cornell uh, I think Jeff Lehman and the previous president of Cornell are fully aware of what is going on, you know what Ginsburg is doing at the um, at the archives run by Cornell, right? Uh, because uh, Jack Sarfati, who is also a blacklisted scientist, yes, yes, I'm familiar. In person at the cocktail party at the fundraiser cocktail party in San Francisco a year ago, 
he handed a letter to Jeff Lennon, who's the president of Cornell, to inform him of what is going on. And uh, the president got in touch with us, and also to with Brian Josephson. Brian Josephson is a Nobel laureate. He was awarded a Nobel Prize many years ago for his for the Josephson effect. And he's a professor at Cambridge University. He's at the Cavendish Laboratories in Cambridge. And they have given uh, Professor Brian Josephson a very hard time as well, because for many, many years he's been, he's been interested in, in the physics of the human mind. Huh. But when you use the word consciousness in theoretical physics, it's, it's a dirty word. You know, only people like Roger, Roger Pendrose can get away, or, or, or John Wheeler can get away with those words. But um, anybody else who uses the word uh, consciousness in theoretical physics, it's immediately a ridicule. You know, the, and label as a crackpot. So Brian, Professor Brian Josephson, who's a Nobel laureate, has also been harassed, and he's also blacklisted. What we mean partially, it means that he can only post his work on a certain uh, category, on a certain directory of the archive. Okay. But he's not allowed to post his work where he wants to post it. You know. President of Cornell promised, oh, he'll do this, he'll do that, and obviously what he did, the only thing he did was just pass the bucket right, around. Right. And instead of speaking with him directly, we ended up speaking with the, I think I forgot her name, the, the I think it's, it's a, a woman who runs the libraries at, at Cornell University. Okay. But, you know, nothing was done. And things were even worse. You know, these people not only are very sadistic, but they retaliate. Mm. And the way they retaliated is by doing the following. Uh, since the blacklisted scientists were not allowed to post their papers in the Los Alamos Cornell archives, they were posting their work, including myself, at the CERN. A laboratory yeah, archives. In CERN is, is a physics laboratory, which is located in in Geneva, Switzerland. Right, right. And it's right now it has superseded the laboratories in the U.S. Yeah, probably the, the number one uh, particle physics laboratory in the world. Right, right. There's the U.S. Ha is, has fallen behind. There's a new collider, I think, there that. Uh, yes, the LHC, the electron yeah, hadron collider. Yes. Right, right. So anyway, CERN. It had uh, has uh, an archive uh, where people can post their work from all over the world. Okay. It's, it's like a mirror side to the Los Alamos Cornell archives. So what happened when um, you know they realized that the blacklisted scientists were posting the work at CERN? Right. Then what obvious happened? CERN decided to shut down. This outlet for the blacklisted scientists. Wow! So they had that yeah, much so power. Yeah, so we had a loophole how to prevent Ginsburg, you know, from blocking total access in the internet. So I mean, again, I mean, I have no proof that Cornell called the people at CERN. Hey, by the way, these blacklisted crackpots are posting right. their work in your in your CERN website, you know, blah blah blah. I mean, I have no proof of that, but the only thing I know is that sure enough. You know, after a few months, where the blacklisted people posted their work in CERN in 
October of last year, CERN uh, notified everybody that they were shutting down that what they call the external server right. for scientists from other institutes. Unbelievable. So that was the end of a last window of opportunity to, to confer our ideas to the world. Unbelievable. So, yes, yeah, so, yes, yes, yes. So, that's, yeah, this is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not only that, but uh, Paul Ginsberg wrote an extremely nasty email that you can get a copy of that email in the Archive Freedom uh, website. If you read uh, my personal story that I called my road to Siberia, and Siberia, I mean the scientific gulag in cyberspace. Uh, Ginsburg threatened, uh, you know, the, the, my institute, the Center for Theoretical Studies of Physical Systems in Atlanta, from, you know, from submission privileges if they defended me, if they supported me. Really? So actually and this I can be found in my case history at archivefreedom.org. Anybody can read I'm not going to go into the gory details, but it's all documented, the emails, the personal emails, date by date by date. And in Ginsburg's words, you can read that, you know. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got yeah. copies of all yeah. this stuff myself, and I've read it. And, and for my listeners out there, I encourage all of you uh, to go to www.archivefreedom.org and read... Dr. Castro's story, and read Dr. Laviolette's story, and read all of the stories of the men and women who are involved in these sorts of things, and and uh, and get an understanding of what's really happening in these uh, in these areas. Because, um, <clears throat> uh, and and I think what we need to talk about next is this. But uh, it is important, and people are going to ask, well, why is it important? You know that that. What is what does physics mean to me and this sort of thing? But uh, I think we need to make that clear uh, about what you all uh, uh, are working on, what some of these things mean uh, to human beings and to the future of our planet and all these sorts of things. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. All right. Hey, this is Mike, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. And we're right in the middle of uh, my interview with Dr. Carlos Castro, really interesting uh, astrophysicist from uh, uh, from MIT. And anyway, hopefully you're enjoying that. We'll come back with the second uh, the second half of that in just a little while. In the meantime, uh, stay tuned. I'll play a little music here, and then we'll come back with the rest of that interview. And it'll go about another 40 minutes or so. And uh, let's see, that takes us to about. Uh, 20 till 2 and I'll either open the phones or something and you guys can tell me what you thought of that interview or we'll just play some music to sort of finish off the thing uh, tonight so alright in the meantime uh, enjoy yourself and this is uh, like I said I've been doing a blast from the past tonight here's uh, Thomas Dolby <laughs> blinded me with science enjoy it
All right, yeah, like I said, uh, blast from the past, 80s style on Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan, and let's get right back to my interview here with uh, Dr. Carlos Castro. And um, I forget what we did at the break there. We were talking about the implications of some of this stuff and what it meant, uh, uh, what it means to the everyday you and me, what, it, well, what the implications of this stuff on culture and everyday society are. So we'll get back to that right now, and uh, I'll talk to you guys in about 40 minutes or so, and we'll finish off the show. Thanks again. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and this is the second half of an interview I did about a month and a half ago with Dr. Carlos Castro. In the, the major crisis we're all facing is an energy crisis. I mean, the only thing we have to do is read the newspapers every day sure. to see what's going on in Iraq. I think oil was $57 a barrel today. Yeah, yeah, I think it was 55 yesterday. So, yeah, so it's going to go up, 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 and this is catastrophic because we have to do something to solve this problem, especially now that China and India are going to gobble oh, you know, an incredible amount of oil. Right. And not surprisingly, in the near future, we may have a major confrontation with China. So, because of course we are fighting for resources, and now they want to drill Alaska. You know, I just heard today. Right, that's in Congress today, right? Yes, so so for the past 50 years, uh, scientists were working on the idea of hot fusion, you know, trying to, you know, reproduce the effect of what goes on in the sun to harness the energy as the sun does by by fusion, right. not fission. There's a difference between fusion and fission. Right, right. Fusion would have been a much cleaner energy resource that doesn't produce the radioactive waste uh, that you know the nuclear radiation produces. But anyway, for 50 years or more, well, let's say 50 years, the people in hot fusion have struggled tremendously for years and years after billions of euro, uh, dollars of uh, work, feverish work, and they haven't, they, haven't had, they haven't solved the problem, essentially how to confine fusion in a safe manner. So about mm, 10, 12 years ago, there was this scientist, Fleischmann and Pons, mm-hmm. from the University of Utah, who you know, observed a very interesting phenomena, which they label called fusion, which could have um, open, given us a new window how to to solve this problem. But of course, uh, you know, there were ridicule, there was a big fiasco, and a few weeks later, you know, the the whole reputation was tarnished, and they were totally destroyed. Uh, Because of course, the powers that be on hot fusion, imagine, you know, were not uh, very happy with this, you know, revolutionary approach. So I don't know very well about the status of cold fusion at the moment. I know Brian Josephson wanted to upload a special report on cold fusion by Edmund Storms, which is a scientist. You know, I, you know, you know about all the new developments. In this right now, he, he's, he's at MIT and he too. Was forbidden I think, isn't he? To do so. And he's at MIT too, I think, isn't he? In, uh, I think Hasselheim at MIT, there was a professor at the, I think the, the director of the quantum electronics lab at MIT, 
tried to unload the paper and he was rejected also, yeah. Well, you know... No, um, it was Tom, I don't remember, I don't know exactly where he is. You know, there's, there, there's another gentleman uh, whose name is Hagelstein. Yeah, uh, Phil ha Phil Hagelstein. Yes, and he's yes. Do, he's do, I, uh, he's doing work at MIT on cold. Yeah, yeah. So he had problems as well in trying in trying to upload the paper. Into well, the, you know the what? And also, uh, Brian Josephson wanted to upload the the review on cold fusion by Edmund Storms, and it was rejected. You know, this is why Brian. Mm. This is how Brian began to have problems with Ginsburg. Right. Well, I'm familiar with it because uh, I w I've been trying to interview. Uh, uh, Paul or Phil Hagelstein, and he's been very re reluctant to talk to me. Oh, that's interesting. But you could try uh, contacting Edmund Storms, and he can tell you all about cold fusion. Well, okay. Let me let me yes, let me. Yes. Since we're talking about this, let me ask you, and and yes. and this is for the benefit of my audience, yes. but. Uh, I want people to understand, first of all, we're talking to a Ph.D. physicist here, somebody who has all the right credentials, all the right letters at the end of and his name. And publications. And publications. And and, yes, and I mean, I could go into, uh, yes. I could go into Dr. Castro's uh, uh, curriculum vitae right now, and it would take me the rest of the program to read the whole thing. Uh, but, so I'm not going to do that. What I'll do is, uh, again... I recommend that anybody who's skeptical about this stuff go to archivefreedom.org and go read his story and go look at his bio and look at his resume and make your own decisions. Uh, but uh, in, in, in your opinion, uh, as a peer of some of these other men and women, uh, in other words, at least let me ask you this, the cold fusion thing, you believe that was at least worth further uh, oh, absolutely. investigation, absolutely. right? Yes. As opposed to being... I mean, even if it was a fluke or uh, whatever, uh, hoax or whatever, people should uh, have looked into it. Right. You know, I, you need to turn the stones. And I heard that the U.S. Navy laboratory has been working on confusion for years. Well, of course. I mean, yes, all, everything yes. gets taken underground. Everything gets yes, taken covert. Yes, yes absolutely, yeah. Um, but, you know, an another point uh, uh, about human nature... You know, the average student or the average scientist who learns about the blacklisting of scientists and about our Archive Freedom org website, the first thing they will say, well, if there is smoke, it's because there is fire. In other words, they will never stop for a second to think on the possibility that there is something wrong with Ginsburg. Hmm. The immediate response is, no, there has to be something wrong with these guys. Right. There cannot be possibly anything wrong with the authority. You know, they, are, you know, they side with the powerful, they've been trained, the people in power, you know, might is right. It's amazing. So they it's will amazing. never believe us. You can show them mountains of evidence, rivers of ink of evidence, they will never accept what is going on. Hmm. I mean, when I wrote an email to you know, Stephen Weinberg, you know, because I was at Austin, Texas, and who is another professor in Texas, you know, uh, because you know Weinberg was at Harvard and he's very close to Sidney Coleman, and Coleman is very close to to Ginsburg. Right. I I wrote to him, you know, like I also wrote to Chomsky, you know, Chomsky responded to me immediately immediately you know he was absolutely shocked he could not believe what is going on 
But when I wrote to Weinberg and all these big shots, they didn't bother nothing, nothing. Hmm. You know, the immediate reaction, oh, you know, these you know, guys are trackpots, you know. So, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, that that I am right. You know, it is possible that some of my papers may be wrong. But uh, but that's not the issue. The, the issue is that, um, you know, I have papers that have been published in journals, have been accepted in journals by two or three referees, and these papers are, are forbidden to be posted in the Los Alamos right. Cornell archives. Right. Right. They are removed by Ginsberg. Not only that, if I write a paper with another co-author, the whole paper is removed. But the co-author himself or herself can post papers by themselves without any problems. <laughs> but if it has my name on it, the papers are immediately removed. Incredible. You know, so obviously that was, uh, once you are blacklisted, all papers, irrespective of form, content, correctness, perfection or imperfection, irrespective if the paper has been accepted or not in the journal, are systematically removed. Outrageous. You know, and that's yeah, absolutely outrageous. And even worse, uh, Tony Smith, for example, is another blacklisted scientist who filed a lawsuit in Georgia. You know, uh, he managed to get some information from one of the administrators at the archives at Cornell, and she leaked some information to him by mistake, saying that she, that the archives at Cornell, that Ginsburg had received complaints from readers about the work of Tony Smith. And then when Tony Smith asked, well, I would like to know who they are. I would like to discuss my work, my ideas with them. Right. If I made a mistake, please, I would like to know what it is, you know, as a normal scientist will do. No, no, they, they cut all communication with him, you know. So the bottom line is that there's a secret uh, operation going on. This organization is run in secrecy, like, you know, like the KGB, for example. Right. You know? And you you have no right to appeal. The, 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 all the emails, for the most part, are answered anonymous under the name the administrators. So there's no way, you know, you have access to. I mean, you cannot reason with them. All right. So it's yeah, so it, yeah. so it sounds like. Yeah. All right, now there are obviously a lot of posts that are making it to the list. That that and and so. The, the difference between the ones that don't and the ones that do, it, yeah. it, it appears that there's sort of like taboo areas or something where, where, where you can talk, yes, you can talk yes, about yes, this. Of course, of course, there are dirty words. Confusion is a dirty word. Uh, consciousness is also a dirty word. Right. Yes. Now, not only persons but also ideas, of course. Amazing, because you know, yeah. you, you, you I, I've been, I made a note here when you mentioned it earlier, but you mentioned one of the scientists who's doing research into the human mind, and and of course, this is the one place that nobody wants to look, because, <laughs> because yeah, no, it's, it's an ugly place. Yeah, and there are many, many answers in there, too. Right, and a lot of people yeah. don't want to go there. And, in fact, the consciousness studies that go back, much of, uh, in my opinion, much of what we're seeing now is an extension of uh, uh, something that happened in the late 60s and in, and in the early 70s. I, I, I think that during that time, uh, and 
and it and it may be peripherally related to the psychedelic era uh, that was happening at the time. But there was yes, a tremendous right, right. There was a tremendous explosion yes. of of imagination and and idea, and science uh, yes. was taken right along with that. But but boy, I tell you, yes. something happened, and the door got slammed. Yes. See, I remember the the Czechoslovakian scientist who was a uh, John Hopkins. He was, I think. Uh, I don't know if he was the head of psychiatry, and his name is Stanislav Grof. Sure, Stan Grof. You know, he worked on the transpersonal psychology movement. Sure. And he actually was, he knew Ilya Prigozhin quite well. Another guy. Ilya yes, Prigozhin. I think that's very fascinating stuff. Prigozhin was a guy that understood uh, systems theories very well, you know. Yes, yes, I know Prigozhin, you know, very well. I mean, he died uh, recently uh, from Austin, Texas, and he was a gentleman. Prigozhin was a gentleman, but again, uh, many physicists don't consider Prigozhin as a physicist. They consider him a chemist, you know, which again is a, has a, uh, a pejorative tone mm -hmm. to to some physicists. So uh, you know, Prigozhin was on the seventh floor, and, which is the statistical mechanics floor, but the other people, the big shots were on the ninth floor, <laughs> you know, on yeah. the tenth floor, whatever. So even at the University of Texas, there was a clique of people. Amazing. And Prigozhin is, it was not well regarded by many people in Austin. Texas. Right. No, no. Yeah, well... Unfortunately, and he was a gentleman, and he played the piano. You know, he, he, he was a very open-minded. Well, I, you, you know, you, you mentioned before that, that, that the mind is like a parachute and that, and that it doesn't work unless it's open. And, yes. and, and I think that what we're getting to, what, what all this is leading to, is that if we want to move science and uh, the, the, the human experience forward, the only way to do that is the way that it's always been done in the past, and that is to move out on the fringe and to keep pushing the envelope of, of, of science yes, and, yes. and everything else. Because I think else. The, the future of the planet uh, depends on it. It obviously now does. Now with environmental problems, global warming, shortage of energy, you know, AIDS, you know, who, we have a pandemic, a bird flu pandemic, you name it. So if scientists cannot cannot communicate with each other, this is the beginning of the end. Right, right. Um, because the whole of society revolves on science. Well, you know, I, I, yeah. tell, I tell people when, when I have these discussions that whether, whether people like it or not, it, it appears that the bet has been placed on science and technology. Uh, I mean, that's where the money has been placed. And, and science and technology are either going to get us out of this predicament that 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 we're in, or they're going to uh, take us deeper into the nightmare. You know. Well, this is another another danger I see. Like I said, many people, in order to sol to solve the problems of the world, they they don't want to solve the problems of the world. They want others to solve the problems of the world for them. So they rely on scientists as the ones who will save the world from from from, from itself. But uh, but we are we are running at that threshold point where maybe we might not be able to save the world because we might not be able to solve these very difficult problems and also mainly because uh, scientists are at war with each other and well, if how scientists are at war with each other I I see I don't see much hope um, for the planet because if they cannot come up with a scientific consensus to solve it.
to solve the scientific problem first, you know, imagine you cannot leave it to politicians. Certainly not. No. Certainly not. In, fa in fact, I would argue that, 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 that our institutions are, are, are fatal, that our ideologies are fatal, and, 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 that, yes. and that I'm hoping that somehow uh, technology will give us uh, the escape, uh, the lifeboat, that, that, that I think that we need and I and you know it's interesting that you mentioned that but more than technology is, is human integrity well you more have to important than right the technology has to be modulated with wisdom and with the yeah, heart because there are many people who are say they are brilliant technologically speaking but emotionally speaking uh, they are retarded well you know, you the, know? The, there's you know, the emotional development is not necessarily correlated with the mathematical development Individual. People are corrupt at their inner core. I mean, I don't think, I mean, of course uh, they may come up with it, uh, an important discovery, but it's not only technology, it's, it's, it's humanity that is well, at risk. Let, you know, um, yeah, I, yeah. I've, I, learned a, I learned a while back uh, that, yeah. that, there's a, that there's a distinction, a difference between intellect and intelligence. And intellect, yes, yes. You know, intelligence it, has many, many, many components. Right, and I think that in many cases, what we're seeing is unbounded intellect, but very little intelligence. That yes, because people don't see the consequences of their actions. Exactly, and yeah. and and the, yeah, and the, the appropriateness, the appropriateness of their action, or the or the inappropriateness of it. Yes, they are looking for instant gratification. Let's drill Alaska, you know, that will solve. Right, right. What do we get, six months of oil from there yes. or something? Yes. Immediate gratification, immediate maximum profit, etc., etc. Well, you know, there's another question that I have for you. You know, you mentioned earlier that, that many people have the idea that science is just this, uh, uh, this exploration for the truth. But yes. in, in, in essence... cruel myth. Right. I mean, in an environment... Uh, like we live in, there's yeah. very, very little uh, pure science that's done just for exploratory reasons. Oh, it's the most oh yeah, for the, for the sake of beauty. Yeah, yeah, very little, very little. Right, I mean, most of it's done yeah, for, yeah. for profit or whatever. Oh, yeah, industry, government, you have the military-industrial-university complex. You know, in fact, it's, yeah. it's interesting because there was a wonderful speech by President Eisenhower in 1961 when he... Yeah, warning about the danger. Yes, and you know something that he, he mentioned in that speech, he, he called, he, he was the, one of the first people, I think, to mention the military-industrial complex, but before that speech was edited, yes. he called it the military-industrial-university-congressional. Complex. Not really well. That's very wise. And he and but they edited that out of the speech before he very actually wise. gave it. Very but wise. he understood that that this thing was pervasive, you know. Yes. And now we're 40 years later, and and it has gone unbounded. We're in a situation where, where these things really are uh, spiraling, at least to a certain degree, out of control. At least it appears to me. I don't see how this stuff is sustainable, you know. Yes. Well, I have a, a friend of mine who's a biologist scientist, uh, Alfred Schroeder, in Austria, in Vienna, mm -hmm. and he sent me an interesting email the other day uh, that he was reading a book by a famous anthropologist. Apparently, he, he was saying that there has been more than 3,500 wars fought, you know, in what, in 6,000 years of history? Huh. 
3,500 wars, which is, this is absolutely insane yeah. when you think about it. And like I said, technology will make uh, wars more deadly. Right. Now people are working on nanotechnology, oh. for example. You will be able to obliterate billions of people if you want by altering their DNA, for example. And people will have no idea that they have been attacked. So you can send these nano robots. They can float through the air and they can get into your system and, and, and destroy the cells of your body. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's nightmarish. It's right, nightmarish. right. And see, the, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. the crazy thing is that the opposite is that if that technology was used with wisdom and with the heart like we're talking about, we could probably create uh, a, a, a much better place for everybody. And for everybody, for everybody, yes. Because I think the two are I don't know how many people die of hunger every day. Right. I mean, it's just... Children, I mean, I forgot. That. Oh, how many? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it's just, it's absolutely yeah. sickening when you actually start to look at it, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think that we have the tools. I think that one of the things that, that you're telling me and that we see uh, with many of the other scientists that are really trying uh, to, to push this stuff forward and to make these advances and to make them available and to bring yeah. them into the, into the, yeah. public, uh, uh, the public realm where we can talk about them and try to work on them, yeah. uh, those... These things are real, and, and, and they're here. It's not a matter of, of, of not having the tools. I think we have the tools. It's that we have to change our minds. Yes. Uh, and also our attitude, of course. Right. Yeah, well, I wanted to actually ask your listeners, you know, before I forget, you know, to, uh, you know, when they go to our website, you know, if they can write to the, to the congress, congressmen and also to the president of Cornell, Know, and demand in a very polite manner to have Ginsburg stop this blacklisting of scientists. Right now, them. is that uh, if they go to the website, is it uh, is it somehow available for them to do that through? Uh, the yes, I think in the archive uh, freedom dot org website, there's a link to you know contact your congressman. Yeah, your as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm and people can you know can contact the local congressman or people in Washington, you know, and they can write to, or of course they can uh, write to contact the president of Cornell. I think the address of Jeff Lemon, who is the president of Cornell, the address is president at cornell.edu. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So right, yeah. Can and write to him and tell him, you know, what's going on with this. Okay. Of course, he already knows what's going on. Right, and I'm and I'm at the website right now, and yeah, there's there's a link right on the front page where you can go to uh, uh, to contact your congressman or senators. So yes, yes. All right. And I, I mean, I I contact also the, the people from the American Civil Liberties Union, but the problem is that they are they're overwhelmed with too many other cases, so they couldn't help me. Well, you know, it's you amazing know, yeah. because this, this sort of thing that you're experiencing is happening in every area of human endeavor, I think, right oh, now. Oh, yeah, no, of course. I mean, if you're a movie star, if you're a musician, if you're a secretary working at a company, no, no, that's right. At all levels of interaction, yes. And it's amazing Absolutely. that, that uh, I, uh, I talk to 
lots of uh, lots of different interesting folks like yourself and and I hear many common stories though uh, you know because I don't I don't talk to uh, people for the most part that are in the mainstream they they already have plenty of people to talk to them I like to talk to people that that uh, that don't have uh, you know that sort of uh, exposure and that sort of availability to the media and many of the people that I talk to uh, in, in lots of different fields tell stories similar to your own although yours is a very uh, a poignant uh, uh, example of it uh, but but yeah I mean it's 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 amazing how how many people when they when they rock the boat or try to shake the trees at all how how the, the repercussions are absolutely outrageous yes I mean we are considered lepers uh, among many scientists I'm a leper to the, the extent that so-called friends of mine have ostracized me completely the people that I thought were friends of mine are not speaking to me anymore, are not writing to me anymore, are insulting me, they're asking me not to write to them anymore. I'm talking in particular of a person that I thought he was a, a very, very good friend of mine who now is a professor at the University of Houston in the physics department. And this individual, I won't say his name, I remember when he was in deep, dire economical straits in Austin, Texas, I helped him out and his family many years ago and now you know when I contacted him to tell him about Ginsburg he sent me a horrible email telling me never to contact him again my gosh you know he doesn't want to hear from me again he doesn't want to know anything about me and this is a person I have helped him financially in the past and this is a person who claims to be doing such a great job to lift the scientific progress of science in Latin America. Huh. So, and I have other scientists, and he's not the only one who, like I said, they side with the powerful. You know, you are a leper, you are an outcast, you are ostracized. And it is very painful to experience people who are your friends. It's a betrayal of sorts, you know. And, betrayal, yes. And yes. Uh, and it's really. Did, did, let me ask you a, per, a personal question, Carlos. Is it is it is is fear driving a lot of it? Do you think? My personal feeling with the scientists I encounter throughout my life is that most of them are spineless. <laughs> most of them are moral cowards. I, I mean, as a proof, I mean, look at the, the, the nuclear menace we have in the world. Scientists build the atom bomb. You know, the governments drop the atom bomb, right? In Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the, you know, the nuclear arms race. I mean, who built those weapons? Right. The politicians, you know, the military people. It was the scientists. So I think only scientists can get us of this mess. I agree. You know, this threat to the planet, you know. Because now, of course, now they are giving Iran a hard time. You know, they may probably bomb, I don't know, I think they, they have singled out 360 sites to bomb in Iran right now. Mm. Of course, Israelis are afraid, of course. The Iranians may have a bomb. Israeli has them, have them. So, but of course, you cannot tell the other guys, listen, I don't want you to have nuclear bombs. And why? I know we are the good guys. Right. And because we are the good guys, we can have nuclear bombs. Right, right. But you are the bad guys. You cannot have them. Right. Because you are not civilized. You're not oh. a bad guy, you know. Right. So, yeah, this kind of mentality. 
in uh, and also, also thinking about China now that they you know they publicly air that you know they they reserve the right to use force on Taiwan. You know, and the fact that China is going to become a major economic power in the war in the world. You know, they have more than a billion people, well educated, and they are going to gobble oil like madmen. So imagine the future conflict with the U.S. Right, I mean, I, it's it's unavoidable. Right. I mean, if you, I mean, China is going to be, you know, the the, the new threat in the future, right? Right. So, I like I said, right. scientists either in China, in Pakistan, you know, you have Khan who gave all this nuclear technology to North Korea and Libya. So, scientists are the ones that can solve this problem, not politicians. Politicians won't be able to haven't solved anything. Right. You know, look, 3,500 wars in <sighs> 6,000 years. Right. So, it is obvious that if it's if the scientists don't stand up. Uh, you know, we are going to kill each other like a bunch of crazy monkeys. Right, and it, and it's funny because, yeah. I, and and by funny I don't mean funny ha ha. I mean funny yes, strange. Yes. That 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 over the course of human history and evolution, you know, from the from the time the first monkey hit another monkey with a club to 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 protect a water hole. Yeah. We, we we've been fighting over resources ever since then, and yeah. and and really the mindset has changed yeah. very little. We've gotten much better at doing some things, and, oh, we're, yeah. and we've gotten much more uh, uh, yeah. efficient at killing. Uh, but but our but our mind is still in that same game. Yes, we're still very primitive. You know, we're just monkeys who can do mathematics. Right, right. You know, you know. But yeah. but yeah. but I think that we've gotten to the point now where. Where we're sort of at the at the end of adolescence, at the end of childhood, and where 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 now our our technology has gotten so sophisticated and yeah. so advanced that now we can actually destroy everything and create a real nightmare society. Yes, yes. Now we can play Frankenstein. Right. With our knowledge in biotechnology and technology. And this, right? Now, who knows what kind of experiments we may do. So what? So we so we are dependent upon the scientific community to use these new technologies with wisdom, and yes. and uh, and if that doesn't happen, just like you say, we're going to be in in a, in a deep boat boatload of trouble. So yes, yes. Well, okay. Well, look, I want to ask you another question, yes. actually. Yes. Before I forget, let me go back to this issue of political correctness. Okay. Now, you have all this scandal that this World Churchill at the University of Colorado is suffering. Because of course he may he may have used the wrong words to express his ideas. I know what he said was not very nice. But also the president of Harvard also got into a lot of trouble for again did not communicating what he was trying to say in a proper way. Right. And and we you know we are scientists we we are we cannot publish our own words in the internet it's it's removed we are blacklisted you know and. Uh, it, it's a deep violation of the First Amendment rights. Right. You know? right. And, um, you know, when I wrote to many newspapers to tell them about these stories, they, they, they don't care about what happens to a bunch of blacklisted scientists. But, uh, but then uh, you have all this mess going on with this political correctness at American universities that if you, if you say the wrong thing, they crucify you. <laughs> So anyway, let's go to your well. Next I, I, I want yeah. to. Uh, yeah. um, it, it's been 
it's, it's, it's an incredibly enlightening conversation, first of all, but it's also a little bit depressing because it's really unfortunate to hear that these things are going on and that in, in the midst, in the midst of, of, of this, we have a planet that's in peril. So my question is, I don't want to end the interview on a, on a downer note. I want to, I want to ask you about what can we be doing and, and how do we mitigate this and what, what uh, you know, I think archive freedom is a great first step, and maybe it's a, a yeah. seed to a, to a greater thing. But but in your opinion, what uh, uh, what should we be doing, and what are you going to be doing? What's your what's on the? Well, I mean, uh, there's a famous expression that uh, was borrowed from from physics: the idea to to think globally, act, but to act locally. So I think you know this. It captures in very simple words what to do. Okay. And also, of course, this involves a continuous effort. This is why it's so difficult on a daily basis, on a monthly basis, on a year year to basis. But the, the bottom line is to really, uh, you know, think, think deeply about what goes around you. Right. You know, and also meditate also. Within yourself, and you know, and try to to come up with answers. <laughs> and of course, actions speak louder than words. You know. No, in my case, well, let's hope that I can have this interview with the LA Times. Uh, actually, uh, Paul Laviolette sent me an email informing me that maybe we may be interviewed by the LA Times. All right. And you know, continue to do my physics, publish in journals. And of course, uh, fight. What else can you do? That's right. Fight or you die. For the rest of the public, you know, you know, just to, you know, spend a few minutes of the day, you know, thinking, you know, who they are and what are they doing in this planet and, you know, what uh, expectations they have for the future of their children. Hmm. And essentially, you know, about the philosophy of life, you know, how how can you make their lives and the lives of others a better place? Wow. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a great uh, a great way to wrap things up. And I'm going to mention again uh, the website www.archivefreedom.org, and. Uh, um, it's been uh, an enlightening conversation, and I hope people appreciate this for what it is, and they get involved and uh, and and understand that they can actually have an effect. You know, we have a big university right here. The University of Missouri uh, is here in Colombia. You were telling in, me, right? In, in Colombia, actually. In oh, I'm from Colombia. Yeah, and uh, interesting. Yeah, I, I actually uh, I, there, there's a, there's quite a large uh, Colombian. Uh, population here in Columbia, Missouri. And oh, really? Yes, there, there, in fact, I know uh, yeah. a, a number of uh, a number of people from uh, from Colombia here. So uh, I see. Well, Colombia is a beautiful country. It is, and it's well, a, it's beautiful. It's just so sad. That uh, Forty years of civil war. Yeah, you read well, my it's mind. A beautiful, beautiful. Country. You read my mind. It's such a you know. There's so many of. Uh, of the Latin American and Central American countries that are just absolutely astounding with 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 Im- amazing important histories too uh, that, that that people need to know about and learn about and, and incredibly important cultures and histories uh, within uh, those cultures that are being eliminated and destroyed as we speak so yeah uh, so much going on that it's hard to keep track of it almost anymore Carlos you know yes 
So if I'm in the area, we'll let you know. Well, yeah, if you, uh, yeah, no, we'll, like we'll, we'll, we'll definitely, we'll definitely stay in touch. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm, I'm we trying can to do a follow-up of this. That's exactly what I was. From now. Yes, and I'm, and I stay in pretty close contact with Paul. And um, yes. and, I, and I'm going to make sure that, uh, that that this that this stays on my radar and that we and that we stay on this story and and, and I'd be glad to talk with other uh, scientists like yourselves that are involved in this stuff. Um, oh, so absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, listen. Um, uh, thanks again very much for spending your time with me. The yes. website is www.archivefreedom.org. We've been talking to Dr. Carlos Castro for the last hour and a half or so, and he's yeah. been uh, a wonderful guest and shared some really interesting and, and, and maybe a little bit uh, uh, confounding information when you think about what's really going on. But it's important stuff. We need to know about it, and we need to, uh, we need to act on it. So. Have a happy St. Patrick's Day. We'll do it, and I, I, I wish you the same and uh, to you and your family, and uh, we'll be in touch. I'll talk to you again. Okay, thank you so much. Take okay, care, ciao. Carlos. Have a good evening. Bye. You too. Ciao. Bye. All right, hi, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And uh, that was it. You just heard the finish of uh, my interview from, obviously, sometime in the middle of March as we uh, closed the conversation with a happy St. Patrick's Day. But anyway, uh, that was Dr. Carlos Castro, a wonderful uh, physicist uh, and uh, an incredible story. And I hope you all took it to heart. I hope you'll uh, take some of his advice and... Uh, Go uh, check out his story and some of the other guys and girls uh, who are having difficulty with some of uh, the powers that be uh, in uh, in this country and and, and elsewhere. It's happening uh, happening around the planet right now. So, at any rate, uh, we may be in the middle of uh, the latest uh, Inquisition, but uh, there's also some tremendous things happening at the same time. And the fact that uh, you know I'm sitting here in the studio talking to my new friend Lara, and she. Uh, uh, we were mentioning about how just the uh, the availability of information and the and the um, the connectivity of uh, people these days how how great it is the fact that I was even able to uh, uh, to connect with Dr. Castro and find out who he was and his story and all that stuff even as few as uh, oh I don't know maybe six seven eight years ago I probably wouldn't have been able to do that uh, so easily now with the with with the access to the to the web and. Uh, and things that we have these days. So, so there is, um, uh, you know, it. Uh, there's always there's always two sides of this stuff, and and there's amazing things happening at the same time as there are real nasty things happening. So, never forget that. And uh, we'll talk about more of these things as we always do next week. And I'm going to close things out with just some music for a while. I'm sort of uh, uh, sort of out of fuel here, but I uh, hope you all enjoyed the show tonight. We'll be back next week. Um, with Nassim Haramain, the director of the Residence Project. Talk about a guy who sees deeply into systems. Uh, and that's what this is about. It's about systems, not about uh, specific areas of endeavor. Right now what we're looking at is a dynamic system, and we have to be looking at uh, what's happening in all kinds of different areas. So anyway, uh, if you're calling, uh, let it ring. I'll pick it up in just a minute. Uh, tune in next week. For Nassim Haramain, and if uh, if I can't confirm that, we'll do open lines or something like that, or I'll get Kent on the line. So, thanks again for listening. Next week, uh, Monday, 11 p.m., we'll do it again. Mike Hagan, Radio Orbit, KOPN. Take care of yourselves. This is Dave Matthews from Under the Table and Dreaming. It's called Typical Situation. Counting, we have each nine planets around.
the sun appeared A fall will last if you try to be Seven oceans plumber the shores of the sea It's a typical situation in these typical times Too many choices here It's a typical situation in these typical times Too many choices Everybody's happy Everybody's free Keep the big door open Everyone will come around Well, you that way If you don't get in line Well, I can away It all comes down to nothing Feeling fire around a sense of sound Four seasons turn on and turn on I can see three corners from this corner Two's a perfect number But one Everybody's happy Everybody's free We'll keep the big door open Everyone will come around I'll be different Or I'll be that way Situation in these typical times, too many choices. Yeah. It's a typical situation in these typical times, too many choices. We can do everything about it. Too many choices.
typical situation in these typical times. Too many choices. It's a typical situation in these typical times. Too many choices. We come to a thing Too many choices.